when I was in fifth grade, I woke up one morning in an absolute panic. I, I remember having the words, oh no, oh no, oh no, just uttered back and forth. And, and, and I, I was rushing around the house. My mom's trying to call me down like, Aaron, what's wrong? And it turns out that I had forgotten to do a homework assignment. It was like one page worth maybe 10 points. I mean, I warned you, I was a short little white nerd when I was a kid, and not much has changed. I think I'm a little calmer, though, uh, than I was as a fifth grader. But I was panicked. I was so worried. And, and I remember getting to school, and my peers are looking at me like, what's the big deal? I mean, they did this all the time. You know, like, what's your problem? But I'm whipping that thing out, and I am rushing through it, trying to get it done. And I think I got it done with like maybe 10 seconds to spare before the teacher called for it, and I, we had to hand it in. But I want you to imagine if I hadn't gotten it done. Imagine that I woke up that morning, just normal, went about my day, got dressed, had breakfast, headed off to school, and I walk into my classroom and my teacher says, all right, everyone, get out your homework assignment and turn it in, and that's the moment I remember. I I don't have it done, so I'm gonna have to turn it in and get a zero. I mean, I hate to think what would have happened to little 10-year-old Aaron had that moment happened. I mean, if I was that panicked over you know, remembering, imagine what would have happened in that moment when I realized I'm gonna get a zero. But if 45-year-old Aaron could take 10-year-old Aaron aside, I think I would say this. Hey, kid, calm down. Like, you're probably still going to get an A. Don't worry. It was 10 points. But let's just pretend, Aaron, that you actually end up with a dreaded A-. minus. I mean, it's not the end of the world. Because no college is going to look at your middle school transcripts No job that you ever apply for is going to ask what your grade was in fifth grade. Your wife is not going to break the engagement with you because she found out you got a zero in fifth grade. Like, you're going to be fine. Calm down. You see, my advice would be coming from a place of perspective. It's amazing what perspective provides Maybe you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend that broke up with you and you thought this is the end of the world. And yet here you are still alive. Like like you're still functioning. And, And most of you, it's been days, weeks, months, maybe years since you even thought about that other person. And for many of you, you're now with someone who's far better than that previous boyfriend or girlfriend. Like you actually came out ahead. That's perspective. Or or maybe you tried to start a business or you joined up with a sport or you engaged in some endeavor and it failed royally. But yet, as you've gone on through life, you've been able to do other things and experience some success in other areas. And, And maybe you've come to a place where you realize you're not defined by your failure. That's perspective. Or maybe you grew up or even right now in life, you feel like you're poor. Like, you feel left out. Like, you don't have the same toys as everyone else. You don't drive the same kind of car. You don't have the same kind of house. You don't wear the same kinds of clothes. Like, you just feel less than a lot of other people around you. You feel poor. And yet, you went on a short-term mission trip. Or you watched a documentary. And you began to see what true poverty was. And you saw this around the world. And you suddenly realized, God has really blessed me. I'm actually doing really, really well. That's perspective. Today, I hope to help you gain some perspective. We're in this series called Acts of Prayer. We're looking at this model, 
ACTS, A-C-T-S, which stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And last week, we began with the A, Adoration. What I hope you see today is that when you really engage in the A, when you really begin to adore God, it will give you some perspective. Because you will begin to see God for who he truly is. But this perspective it's also going to give you is not only getting a clearer picture of God, as you adore him, it's also going to give you a clearer picture of you. And when that happens, you will start to see where you fall short of God's standard and it will lead you to confession. But rather than leave you broken and discarded, it leaves you broken into a place where God can begin to remake you and make you whole. And you will feel more alive and more connected with your creator than ever before. So as we get ready to go into the scriptures, would you pray with me? So Heavenly Father, I pray today you would give us perspective. That today you would help us capture an idea of just how great and glorious you truly are. But at the same time, God, as we gain this bigger perspective of you, it would also give us a clearer perspective of ourselves. Father, some of us, we're going to need to hear this. For some of us, this is, this is going to break us. This is going to be hard because you're going to be calling us to do something that many of us have been fighting against. So that's why, God, right now, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, soften us right now as we talk to you. Prepare us for what you want to say. Because I believe that you gathered each person here for a reason. And so, Lord, would you do right now in them what you want to do to, so that you may call them and draw them to yourself. So, Lord, may this be about what you want to say, not what I have prepared to say. And may you accomplish what only you can accomplish. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you today, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 6, the book of Isaiah. If you're not quite sure where Isaiah is, I got a little cheat sheet there on the screen, or feel free to use the, you know, the index at the very front. Uh, if you are a first-time guest and don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry, I'm going to have the scripture up on the screen for you, uh, but I'm going to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a couple of different translations back on our Give and Grow table, just stop back there, we'll find the translation that will fit you the best, and we would love for you to just take that and make that your everyday Bible. If you already own a Bible, then just bring it next time you come to Riverwood, because every time we gather, we open this thing up together, and we, we look at it, we study it, we read it, and we, we get ready to understand what it is God said to us. Also, if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull it out. You probably have noticed a few of our church family already doing that. That is totally fine here. And if you have a smartphone and don't have a Bible on it, download one. That way, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible available to you. Um, if you're part of the Riverwood family, I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're going to be turning to Isaiah every single week during our Advent series. We're going to do a series called A Son is Given. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 every week and looking at the four titles that God gives to Jesus and seeing who Jesus is. And so I hope this Advent series will be really, really meaningful. But before we get to that Advent series, today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. So let me uh, read that aloud as you read silently along. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. In the uh, first year of my marriage to Leanne, uh, Leanne's folks took us on a skiing trip over Christmas. Uh, when Leanne was in middle school or maybe high school, her family started to take a trip and it was typically over spring break. But then as the duck girls started getting into college and not everyone's spring break aligned, they started doing it over Christmas. And so the year that Leanne and I were engaged, I actually got to go on this trip. But the year that we were married, that second trip was better because, first of all, I didn't have to sleep on the couch as the, uh, you know, engaged guy. I actually got to share a bed with my wife. But the better part was I was not a rookie any longer. I could tell you stories about my first time out on the mountain. I think my father-in-law was trying to kill me. But the second time, I could now ski on my own and I could get away from him. I remember it was our last day. I love my father-in-law, by the way. We, we get along great. I'm making a joke. It wasn't very funny. Uh... Our, our last day on this second ski trip, uh, we were at Wolf Creek Ski Lodge. Uh, Wolf Creek is located all the way down on the southwest corner of uh, Colorado. And it's really small. There's only like seven lifts compared to like a Vail or a Breckenridge, which have like, I think, like 40, you know, 30, 40 different lifts. And, and, and it costs, uh, you know, quite a bit less. But the reason we would drive all the way there, because, I mean, it was like an extra five hours from all the other resorts that were, you know, in the Rockies, kind of, you know, just west of Denver. The reason we'd go all the way down to the southwest corner of the state was because Wolf Creek got double the snow of pretty much all the other resorts. I mean, even now, I just went and looked. They're already at like a 54-inch base, and it's not even December. I mean, Wolf Creek just has a ton of snow, and it's good snow. It's great for skiing. And so they would make the jaunt all the way down there. And the great thing about going over Christmas is everyone else around that area stays home on Christmas Day, yet the lift, they're, they're still open. And so you just get to ski right up, get right on the lift, off you go. Well, I remember it was about two, three days after Christmas, we'd skied our three or four days, and uh, we were going to be packing up that night and, and taking off uh, the next morning. And the sun had just started to set behind the mountains, and I remember it was just Leanne and I together, and we decided to go out on this eastern edge, uh, 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 kind of over on the edge of the, the resort. And we're skiing down, and I don't remember what happened. I think Leanne had a, a equipment malfunction or something. She ended up stopping, and, and I was skiing down a little further, and then I realized, you know what, I, I should stop and wait for my wife. So I stop, and as I stop, I realize there is no one around, and it is absolutely silent. And I just begin to look. The scenery was just incredible. I mean, the snow, we, they had just received some snow that night before, and it was just pristine. The, the trees, the, the mountain range, the sky was so crisp and clear as it was starting to darken. And in that moment, I just felt small compared to the vastness of this all. And yet, as small and breathless as I felt, I felt more connected to God in that moment than I typically did. 
And, and in that moment, I just couldn't help but utter a, a, a word of like, thanks, and just praise God for this. I was just in awe. Have you ever had a moment like that? A, a, a moment where you're just left breathless. You, you, you feel small, and yet some reason it, it like makes a mark on you. Maybe it was on top of a mountain, or, or maybe it was at the beach. Maybe it was when you were in an airplane flying and you got some perspective on the size of the earth. Maybe it was when you were in the hospital holding your firstborn. Or maybe it was as you watched your bride walk down that aisle or you saw your groom waiting for you up front. The moment just felt so much bigger than you. And you felt small, and yet there was a sense of awe. And it left a mark. You felt more connected in that moment than you typically do. I think that's what's going on with Isaiah here in chapter 6. I, I think he's being given a vision. And we don't know if it's the temple in Jerusalem or if it's a temple up in heaven. All we know is that he's at the temple. And he begins to see some really strange things. And I think it leaves him feeling small and breathless and in awe. I mean, the, the first thing we notice is that the Lord is sitting upon a throne. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But then it says that God was high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. The, the train of a robe was the hem. M many times uh, in Isaiah's day, kings or, or rabbis would wear these robes and they would make the fringe as, as ornate as possible. And the more fancy it was, the more, the higher their status. So some of them, they would have tassels hanging down. And sometimes the more tassels you had, the higher your rank. Uh, and maybe the, the thicker it was or the, the more embroidered there was, that, that meant your status was high. And here he is at this temple and all of a sudden, it's just God's hymn. It's just the fringe of his robe that fills the temple. Now, I personally don't think that Isaiah actually sees a true hymn. Maybe he did. Maybe he really did. But we know that the God is spirit. But yet somehow as he's in the spiritual realm, he sees something. And I think he's just struggling to know how do I put words on this? And the best he can come up with is that like God is like a king sitting on a throne and he is so majestic. He is so glorious that the train of his robe fills the temple. I think he's just seeing and sensing the glory of God. And it's so glorious. It fills the entire place. But that's not all he sees. Above God are these beings, these creatures that he calls seraphim. Uh, the word seraphim, seraphim in Hebrew simply means fiery ones, the burning ones. And interestingly enough, I, I grew up in a church that, you know, we sang songs. And some of these songs, would, we'd sing about the cherubim and the seraphim, these type of angels. But it turns out that in Scripture, this is the only place that this word is used of supernatural beings. This is the only place you can hear about these angelic beings called seraphim, these burning ones. And, and they have six wings. I think that would be quite a sight. And two of the wings were to cover their eyes. Maybe it was to say that God's glory was so amazing that even they, these created beings in heaven, couldn't dare look at the glory of God. And so they cover their eyes. And then two of them cover their feet. One scholar said that they thought that meant that, that they would not walk anywhere without God leading them. That they, they covered their feet as if to say, I will go where God wants me to go. 
Other scholars said that the feet were a euphemism for, for genitals, and this was their way to show modesty, that they are covering themselves to show humility and reverence in the presence of God. But then these last two are there to fly. And one of these seraphim, as he floats there above the throne, begins to declare out. And he says this, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Like, God is so holy that he can't just use the word once. He's got to say it three times. And, and perhaps it's because he's saying one for each of the members of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Each of them are holy, so he's got to say it three times. Or maybe it's just that God is so holy that you can't just say it once. Hey, to our overflow kids, what does the word holy mean? Any, any of you? Oh, don't be shy. Go ahead. Set apart for God. When you are set apart for God, you are set apart for his purposes. Well, this seraphim is saying that God is so holy, so set apart that there's nothing like him. And he's got to say it three times just to help us begin to even grasp the idea of how different and incredible God is. He is so separate. He is so set apart. Nothing even approaches his grandeur. And then, notice what he says next. This seraph says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Not just the temple that Isaiah is in. Like, the whole earth is full of his glory. Like, God's glory cannot be contained within anything. It just spreads, and it just goes. And as this seraph says these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice what happens. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, if I were standing there, and the whole place begins to shake, and all of a sudden you see all the smoke, I'm going to think some natural gas uh, you know, main broke, and it sparked a fire, and now there's smoke, and i got to get out of here. But since they didn't have natural gas, well, there's natural gas, but they didn't have lines to bring it in, Isaiah thinks something entirely different than me. Isaiah would have been very familiar with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the second one, Exodus, it's often portrayed that God, his presence is revealed in smoke. In Exodus 13, when God leads the Israelites out of Egypt where they were in slavery and he begins to lead them through the wilderness, it says that God led them as a pillar by fire during the day, I mean, during the night, and a pillar of cloud of smoke during the day. And in Exodus 19, as God calls Moses and the elders to come to Mount Sinai, and Moses is going to go up and receive the Ten Commandments and the law, it says that a cloud descended down and like smoke, and there was thunder and there was lightning, and the people backed away. They saw it as God's presence. And so I think as Isaiah is standing there in this vision, and he hears these words, and all of a sudden the place shakes, and it's just filled with smoke, I think to him, he is realizing this place is full of God's presence. And in that moment, he feels small, he feels overwhelmed, he feels breathless, and he gains some perspective. This past week, I uh, heard a, a pastor uh, give a, a what is a really good illustration. He says, so often we see our problems like a mountain, and it's in the distance there, and it just seems so overwhelming. And yet, when you just stop and you just hold up your hand, suddenly the mountain looks small. 
And he was saying, that's perspective. And, it, and I thought it was a really good illustration, but then it started to dawn on me that, yeah, but if you get closer to that mountain, it ceases to be smaller than your hand. And you start really seeing this for what it is. And I think for some of us, our problem is not a mountain in the distance. Our problem is the mountain right in front of us. And we're standing at the roots of it. And it just seems overwhelming. And no matter how, where we put our hand, it overwhelms us. You see, for us to get true perspective isn't to try to measure it by us. It's to measure it by God. And realizing that this huge mountain was pinched in place by God. That, that the stars, the planets, everything was created by God. And so this mountain is nothing to him. That's why I think Jesus says, if you have faith, even the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mountain to move into the sea. Because it isn't you being powerful and mighty. It's that your faith is in God. And God is able to pick up a mountain and move it into the sea. It isn't about how much faith you had. It's who your faith is in. And I think that's what Isaiah is starting to capture. His God is so big, so huge, so powerful that a mountain is nothing to him. Because his whole glory fills the whole earth, the whole universe. And he is now standing there in his presence. Now, as you gain a, a clearer picture of God, it starts to help you get a clearer picture of yourself. And so as Isaiah gets this, this proper perspective of who God is, notice what his reaction is in noticing about himself. Verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, when Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's not just saying that he's a potty mouth who says lots of dirty words. It's his way of poetically saying, I am a sinner. I am so weak. I am nothing compared to this. And I think Isaiah would know that God in Exodus 33, 20 told Moses that no man could look at my face and live. And I think Isaiah is now freaking out thinking this is the last thing that's ever going to happen to me. I am going to die and just be eliminated in this moment because I have seen God. Thankfully, he hadn't seen God's face. He had merely seen the hem of his robe. But it leads him to confession. He confesses, I am a sinner. I am a man of unclean lips. As he starts to see just how holy God is, he starts realizing just how unholy he is. As he starts seeing just how big God is, he starts realizing just how small he is. As he sees how glorious God is, he starts realizing how weak he and all of humanity is. And as he gains this proper perspective of who God is, it makes it really clear who he is. Now, I need to talk to uh, two groups of people here. First, I, I need to talk to those of you who struggle with pride. Right? You, you have a very high view of yourself. I'm also going to talk to those of you who struggle with just beating yourself up mentally. You, you have a very low view of yourself. Right? So I'm going to come to those of you who, who struggle with a low self-esteem. Right? You can listen in. Don't take too much of this to heart, what I'm about to say to those who struggle with pride. But those of you who have a very high view of self, I want you to look at Isaiah. Isaiah, of any of the prophets, has the, the, the greatest right to be proud. He, he goes on to be the most quoted of all of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. 
God chooses to give Isaiah more glimpses of the coming Messiah than anyone. And that, that includes the big guys like Moses and, and, and David and Jeremiah. Like God gives Isaiah more insight into the future than he gives to almost anyone else. And so if anyone could walk around with a lot of pride, it's Isaiah. And yet when Isaiah gets this clear picture of who God is, it completely humbles him. It empties him of pride. And that's what the gospel should do for us. That as we peer at this gospel story of Jesus going to a cross to die for our sins, rather than instill us with pride, it should actually humble us. Because the cross means that we are far more sinful than we realize. Because if you struggle with a high view of yourself, you're going to think you can take care of your own sin. You're going to be far less likely to confess it because I, I, I got this. Yeah, 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 I, I, I struggle with lying. Or yeah, I, I might, you know, cheat, you know, on my time card or, you know, at school and that. But I, I, I don't do these things addictively. I'm, I'm fine. I, I can overcome this. I can do this on my own. Because, hey, I'm, I'm better than most people. But if you continue with the high view of yourself, then you don't really have a clear, accurate picture of God. That's why you need the Axe Bottle of Prayer. Because as you start not with God, help me, or I need, or I want. You start with God, you are. And as you start focusing on God being glorious and majestic and more powerful than anything else, and you start getting this clear picture of him, your pride is emptied out. Your big head deflates, and you start seeing, I do not measure up. The day you don't need to confess is the day you are completely perfect. Until that moment, you look at the perfection of God, you see where you fall short, and now you know what to confess. And you just begin to confess that to God. Now, for those of you who have this low view of self, you, you hear Isaiah say, woe is me. And you, you identify, because you're saying that every single day. Like, like, you get up in the morning, and you're already beating yourself up. Like, something doesn't go right, and you just, you just take it upon yourself. Like that, that's your problem. You're just beating yourself up on the inside. You have this negative monologue going on all the time. And so while it is true that the gospel story, that Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, tells us that we're more sinful than we realize, there's another part to it. And that's what you need to hear. It is that you are far more loved than you could ever realize. And that's what happens to Isaiah. Notice uh, verse six and seven. After he confesses, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, part of me thinks this is a little weird. That one of these burning ones reaches over to the altar, takes one of these burning coals, brings it over and touches his lips. Like in my mind, I mean thinking I'm going to get a huge burn mark. My lips are going to puff up and then talking is going to be really difficult. This does not sound like my sins being forgiven. But I want you to realize something. Where is this burning coal taken from? The altar. What happens at the altar? Well, it's the place of sacrifice. It's where animals are killed. And many of these animals, they don't end up being used for their meat to feed the priests. They end up being used as burnt offerings. In other words, they get 
wholly offered to God. They are first killed and their blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the Israelites. But then they are burned, completely consumed. As they're on this altar burning, their blood would drip down onto the coals. And it's one of these coals that gets over. In other words, it was the sacrifice that atoned for Isaiah's sin. And it shows him that God was not there to smite him. God instead was there to restore him. And if you have this low view of yourself, you need to stop beating yourself up. Because as you come to God and you confess your sin, he forgives it. I mean, just in our previous series where we walked through 1 John, we saw in chapter 1, verse 9, that if you confess your sin, God is able and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God is not looking at what you've done wrong and trying to continue to beat you up for it. That's why you've got to stop the negative monologue. Instead, you need to realize that when you confess your sin, God forgives you of that sin. And it shows you that, yeah, you're far more sinful than you realize, but you are far more loved than you could ever dream And all of this comes about because both the high-view person and the low-view person has this accurate picture of God. As they begin to remind themselves and pray and, and exalt God and remind themselves of who he is, it leads them to confession. But that confession leads to forgiveness. And then something really cool happens. And this actually gives us a glimpse into what we'll be doing next week. And that is thankfulness. Notice verse 8. Isaiah then says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Do, Do you realize the change that Isaiah has just gone through? He just went from seeing the glory of God, being absolutely overwhelmed by it, feeling so incredibly small, so breathless, And he feels like, this is it. This is the end of my life. I am so sinful. I am so utterly different than this pure, holy being. I'm just going to be eliminated. And instead, his sin is forgiven. And he goes from saying, woe is me, to send me. Because when the triune God says, who will go for us? He's the first to volunteer. Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Send me. Because I'm so thankful for who you are. I'm so thankful for what you've done. And other people need to see this as well. But before we can get to that, we have to go through confession. Yeah, sometimes we want to jump straight from adoration. God, you're so wonderful and so glorious, and I thank you for the life you've given me. But what we need to do is focus on who God is. Because when we really get that proper perspective of God, that's when we begin to get the proper perspective of ourselves. And it's in that moment we find ourselves saying, I don't measure up. And now I have something to confess. Confession is so hard. Because it is admitting, I've done wrong. And for many of us, we're fearing that it will ruin our reputation. We, we, we fear that, that we're not as good as we really think we are. And so we don't want to go through confession. Because it feels like it's going to be so painful. But instead, it breaks us down So that God can begin to pull out that which does not reflect him. And he can begin to remake us and shape us into the image of Jesus. And so this very act that feels so painful is the very act that actually brings life. 
And what I hope happens today is that for some of you, you will gain perspective. You will see that you are far more sinful than you want to admit. You are far more loved than you could ever dream. And as that gospel brings you that perspective of who God is, what he's done for you, as you confess, it then leads you to thankfulness. Last week, as we opened the series up, we um, moved all those chairs over and we put up that paper. And we just gave our church family an opportunity to write different things about God. And for those of you that participated, I, I hope that this week you've been doing more of that. But next week, I really want us to gather together and thank God. I look forward to just putting this mic right here and for us to get to hear the things that we are thankful for and what God has done in our lives. But I think for us to truly express true gratitude and not just come up next week and go through the motions, it means this week we need to stop and really confess and just empty ourselves and pour it out to God. So that's why what we're going to do right now is we're just going to listen to a song. I'm going to invite the band to, to come up here and uh, lead us in this. Uh, this is a song I've known for a, a number of years. And so uh, last week I, I texted uh, Zach and said, hey, could you, uh, could you learn this song? It's, it's not super easy. And so they, they worked on it. They put it together. And, and what I'm going to encourage you to do is not try to learn the song so you can sing it. Rather, just listen to the song and let the words become your prayer. This song calls out of kind of the traditional liturgical church, the Kiri Eleison, which means, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And so as you listen to the words of these songs, would you let it become your prayer? Would you let it be your confession? And as you listen to it, if the Holy Spirit says, I want you to confess this, would you just take the moment and do that? As soon as they're done singing the song, Ed's going to come up and lead us in communion. We're going to take the elements together as one body. And as part of our commun uh, communion, we are going to confess our sins to God, recognizing Jesus' body and blood being broken and shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. So let's spend these next few moments in confession. <laughs>